0: Good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Wow, y'all get quiet fast. I was going to say, Welcome to co- this is Coffee House Theology Dark Roast, Midnight Edition, but it's only 6 30. It feels a lot like midnight. It gets dark at, what, 3? Good night. A couple of logistics things, right? The uh, pastor uh, that's called for this campus um, is coming preaching in light of a call this Sunday. I hope you guys are all in prayer. Um, that the Lord reveals what needs to be, right? Uh, the search team certainly feels, the search team has gone about a godly process to get us to this point. And they believe this is, this is the man God is calling for here and just pray that that's confirmed decisively one way or the other on Sunday, right? Because it's a lot better to know now than a year from now, amen? And so, and pray for his family, pray, pray for them as they come in because they're gonna look at us and they could, he could come look at us and go, yikes, I don't think he will. Y'all, y'all are a pretty awesome group. I don't tell you, I don't say this enough, but I am, I am deeply honored to teach you all. You guys are a fantastic group to teach. You guys are engaged. You ask wonderful questions. And I am incredibly blessed by you being here and doing this. And I know I don't say that enough, but thank you very much for being here. Thank you for all you guys do. The way you engage, it's just awesome. Um, let's see, what well, anything else going on? We've got a couple more weeks. I think I'm going to do Titus 3 next week. We're doing the Ten Commandments tonight. Ten words, Ten Commandments. I'm going to use those interchangeably. Uh, Ten Commandments tonight. So we're popping from right, a couple of Paul's writings back in the Old Testament. We're, um, then we're probably going to do Titus 3 and then James 1 and it's Thanksgiving. And then we'll close out with Luke's birth narrative and then John 3. So I think that's a, I think that's a reasonable, reasonable path from here for the goodness of God for the rest of the semester. Uh, let's see. I can't think of anything else. I apologize for the, I will say this, I apologize for the four-page handout. Um, I write a script every week. Uh, Benjamin and I actually were talking this morning. I'm generating as many pages of writing this semester as he is as a full-time master's student. Um, and Which means you guys are absorbing the same number of pages as is written by a full-time master's student in theology. They're um, not theology, but ethics and the art of religion or something. Um, Right, But that, that's a lot. And, and this week on the Ten Commandments, when I, when I got down to the Ten Commandments, I could either pre- basically put a sentence or two or give you kind of the blurb on the thoughts. And that's what's extended this out. And so I, you've got essentially my script. So a lot of what I'm going to read is, is going to be written for you. So you don't have to necessarily write as many notes. However, you want to listen. Um, we absorb information differently when we listen than when we read. And so you may may want to listen along. I say that the notes are very extensive just because I like some of the way these things were framed. It's primarily from the Christ-centered uh, expositional commentary by Tony Madeira, I think. Madeira, yeah, Madeira, I think. Um, And then the UBS, which is the commentary that we use to translate the Bible into other languages and the New American Commentary are heavily weighted in this. And the NIVs, well, there's a bunch of them. Anyway, a bunch of commentaries went into this. The structure's from from Tony. Um, And I think we're good. We're good? All right, I've, I, I will pray this week. I forgot to pray before the thing last week. I was trying to remember the Australia thing and, and remind people. Uh, well, actually, let's go through. We, do, we have the, code, there's the code to sign up for the email. And if you're not here in, in, in place, you can go to stationhillchurch.com, click on Coffee House Theology over at the left. And at the bottom of that page, you can type in your email and join the mailing list. And you will get the, this week's notes come out next week. And, um, or you can do this in the room. And then we've got a Slido room. And that's 22, two, you can go to slido.com and enter two two nine seven seven eight nine, or hit this uh, QR code. You can ask questions, or if there are questions that you, you can also like questions, so they come up to the top, so they're more prominent for me to, me to see. Again, I'm up here alone, so we will ask easy questions, right? Oh, good. Um, I, think, I think that's it. We, we ready? We good? All right. Father God, we're thankful. Man, are we thankful. We're thankful that you're good all the time and that you're working to, good, to the good, right, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we forget that because the world kind of gets crazy or life kind of gets crazy or we kind of get crazy. And we forget to, to seek your good and to look for the goodness that you are doing. So give us eyes to see and, and hearts to see your work, your handiwork, right? Before us, that we see the beauty in the world, that we see the things that are of God, and we point them out to people, and we are your witnesses, right? That we witness for you. That's our job, is to witness and to love. And so, Father, let us fulfill those roles Those roles, well. Tonight, we're studying the Ten Commandments. Open our hearts and our minds, Father, to your word, to your teaching, uh, and change us. Anytime we encounter your truth, uh, you, you should not, we should not leave the same way. And so Father, don't let us be the same people that came in as leave, as we've encountered the truth. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray, amen. All right. So the goodness of God, right? So God is good, right? And we've talked about this every week. God is the standard of good and what God does is good. Going back to emphasize that God is the standard of good. We want the standard of good to be our, our welfare our comfort, right? That's not the standard of good, right? It's God's good and God's purposes and oftentimes his goodness comes out of our suffering, right? He will take our suffering and sometimes he will test us, the Bible says, but out of that comes his good, right? And we believe everything and and you have to decide that, right? You have to decide that and those of us that follow Christ have decided that. And so we give our lives as a living sacrifice, right? So whatever he wants to do or needs to do, he can do with it, right? And so that, that's how, that's how we, know, we, we deal with goodness. Uh, this is a gear change, right? Semester started off with Paul's writings. Uh, we, we looked at Philippians and Romans. Um, talked about Philippians, kind of Paul giving us a hug. Um, we kind, kind of need a hug to start the semester. Um, Began with a powerful statement, right? That to live as Christ is to die as gain and all, all that matters is Christ and his kingdom and the glory of God. Right, and, and and we should do this in the unity of the church. And those same things were echoed in Romans, right? Where we saw that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that, that grace, rather than being a license to sin, is a liberty uh, to freedom to obey God's commands. And and not that his commands can justify or sanctify us, right? But the but they show us what sin is. And then Romans twelve showed us how we in Christ, right, Christ relate to God, ourselves, our community, and our enemies. Right, and the basic structures that underpin those notions all come from what we study tonight. Right, all all come from these render, this rendering of the law, which is which is fascinating to me. Uh, so let's let's zoom out. Right, we've got a variety of experiences in the Bible in the room, and we're kind of changing gears. The the Bible, 66 books, divided into two chunks: the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is before the incarnation of Christ. The New Testament, the first four books are the life of Christ incarnate, and then the Acts of the Apostles, and then a bunch of letters and writings that kind of fit into that timeline that tell us how to live and how to love as, as followers of Christ, explain kind of the practical ways that that, 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 that happens. Um the Old Testament books are grouped in lots and lots of ways, okay? But one of the more helpful ways, it's kind of a fourfold division, of uh, the Pentateuch, which is the four or five, first five books where we'll be tonight, the historical books, the wisdom books, and the prophetic books, right? And the, the, the Pentateuch is composed of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, I taught a young adult Bible study for five years, 50 nights a week, and we went verse by verse, word by word through Deuteronomy for three hours every Friday night. They would come to my house at 5 o'clock. They would cook for each other, which is not a good idea for a bunch of 22-year-olds to come cook in your house. But they did. And I tell you, we had two West Pointers. And those two West Pointers, when they cooked at our house, our kitchen was cleaner when they left than when they got there. That's the most amazing thing. I've, I've never seen anything. They, they would drive down from Fort Campbell every Friday night for Bible study. And then we would start at 7 o'clock. We would read the Word. We would talk about it for three hours. We, we would pray for an hour. And then we would send them home because we had little kids. And we were old, and they were going to be up early. Right, but we ground through Deuteronomy. I, I, outside of the Gospels maybe Philippians, Deuteronomy is my favorite book of the Bible. Maybe the book of the Bible that I've, I've had most, if not all of it, memorized at several points in my life. Um, I absolutely love that because it, it is it tentacles of it. It's the second telling of the law. And so tentacles of it go everywhere in Scripture. It's just a big explosion. It, it goes everywhere, forward and back. It's, it, you know Jesus, outside of the Psalms, I think, was Jesus' most quoted book of the Bible. Right, so I, the reason we went to study it was if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Kind of the way we figured, it, right? Um, and Deuteronomy does contain a version of the Ten Commandments, um, but it's an echo from the context of Exodus, right? Where Exodus is in, in the in the um, in the in the actual narrative, right, of how the how the Israelites were being led out of Egypt. Um, you know, and it's kind of fascinating Benjamin mentioned this when we were talking about this on on, Saturday, on Monday. he said it's it's the right genesis arranged is arranged right there's kind of the creation narrative and then there's the toldoth right the the generations of the generation of and the generation of and the generation of so time is flying by right and it flies and we and then we, we get to kind of the beginning of the exodus and it slows down and then and then that you come to to Moses right and we kind of get a slower time scale of of Moses and then it hits Mount Sinai. and It stops. Right half of the Book of Exodus is at Mount Sinai. A third of the Pentateuch is at Mount Sinai. Isn't that wild? Just how important this spot is, this particular spot. That's that's just that's really that's really wild. Part part of the narrative, right? Is is as the Israelites were coming out, one of the, some of the most important and undertaught verses, I, I think, is the in, very end of chapter two of Exodus, right? They, so the Israelites are imprisoned in, in Egypt and Pharaoh dies and new Pharaoh comes that does not know of Joseph, right? And verses 23 through 25 of Exodus two say, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. This cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Jacob saw the people, uh, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They didn't even have to cry out to him. They cried out, and he heard their cry. You know what the next chapter starts? The call of Moses, right? He's preparing the man who's gonna lead him out, right? God is that merciful, right, That, that merciful. Um, the Egyptians, right, were particularly cruel to the Israelites, and Moses does battle with Pharaoh in God's power. Eventually, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. As they approach the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. Right, sends the army after him. God miraculously saves the Israelites in the parting of the Red Sea and closing it again to crush the, Israel, the Egyptian army. Finally, Moses and the Israelites end up here at Mount Sinai, and and the, here they and here they meet God. So, a little background on on uh, on on Exodus and particularly the, the 10 commandments, right, who Moses, right, who was called to lead the Israelites out of Egypt was the author. It's a, right, it's a discourse on God instantiating his law when it occurred about, most people say about three months, it's three moons, and there's an interpretation of that anywhere from seven weeks to three months into this huge, long journey into the promised lands, right? So this is at the beginning. Where Mount Sinai, or as we said, the location of about half of Exodus and a third of the Torah, and why? To let God's people know how to relate to him and to each other, right? That's what, that's what these commandments are in. Um, so nothing in Exodus 20 is described as a commandment or law or the like uh, to be sure the words presented here by, uh, by God do indeed command his people and sol- to, must solemnly act in ways that are basic to the covenant. But their significance goes beyond that of routine laws right this is much more like a national constitution than one section of a codified law that they deal with areas of law that would would be explained in more detail in the words to come right further scripture draws more detail in these Um, it is both traditional and convenient to call them the Ten Commandments as long as their special nature is realized right It's, it's generally called the ten words and in Hebrew it says why ten words the Hebrew is literally the ten words Um, which makes, there was a lot of really interesting academic discussion on were they originally a negative modifier in a single word? You know, I don't know. It's not, that's not what the Lord gave us. And so lots of papers and books have been written on that topic. I take the scripture the Lord's given us, right? I mean, you can go through kind of all the academic stuff you want to go through. Uh, This this is what the Lord gave us. And it's very congruent to, to, to who he is and what he seems to want us to know. All right, so in Exodus 20, verse 1, we read that God spoke all these words, right? And that's wonderful. God spoke these words directly rather than through his mediator, Moses. All right, the people are so awestruck and overwhelmed by this experience that when God finished, the people asked Moses to speak instead of Yahweh, verse 19. Um, This is a quote from Stuart. He said, the people heard the voice of God for themselves and thus could not doubt his presence among them, a presence more directly manifest at Sinai than in any other previously since they had first learned of his interest in them back in 225 and 431. All the people were hearing the voice of God just as Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, and the patriarchs had heard it and, and as Moses had heard it earlier at Mount Sinai when God called him there. And this time, the voice of God was accompanied by such audio and visual displays, right, 19, 16 through 19 and 20, 18 through 21, as to leave no doubt in their minds as to both his presence and his uniqueness. Right? Those was mountain, right? The mountain shook because it knew the voice of its creator. Right? I love Isaiah's description of these audio-visual displays from 4221. It says, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Right, so Exodus 19 sets the stage for the 10 words. Um, as, as chapters 19 and 24 function as bookends to the covenant scroll, and which included the Ten Words in, in chapter 20 and the ordinances in chapters 21 through 23, Gentlemen and Kingdom say, central to the Book of Exodus and indeed the entire Pentateuch is the covenant made between Yahweh and Israel at Sinai, comprised in Exodus 19 through 34. 24. The focus of chapter 19 is Yahweh setting the terms of the relationship between Israel and Himself. Right? He has delivered the people, but the terms have not yet been set. So they know Yahweh, but, they, but not like they are going to know Yahweh, which I thought was an impressive statement. Uh, chapter 19 shows God stunning the Israelites with his blazing holiness and overwhelming glory. This is the God that calls them and makes his covenant with them. He is both gracious and holy. Many want to isolate the commandments from this context, but it is critical to know the God who gave them right? So the calling, verses 19, 1 through 6. The people had been walking through the wilderness for three months. Um, he interpreted it for three moons. He interpreted either seven weeks or three months. Being here at Sinai would have reminded Moses of his first encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush. God promised to bring Moses to this mountain, right? Identified in 1920 as Mount Sinai, and he did. As the Israelites camped, Moses went up to God, There, Moses would receive this amazing covenant as God said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a beautiful picture of God's grace as he brought them out, right? Lifted them up and drew them close. An eagle is a great picture of this, right? It's both a bird of prey and portrayed as a bird of rescue. Egypt would be the prey, right? And Israel would be the rescued. God began by reminding them of what he had accomplished for them and that, that, the, that he was their healer and redeemer who delivered them from the mighty Pharaoh. In light of this, God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God set the terms for the relationship. Uh, God called them and and us, right, to himself for faith and obedience. First, he rescues us, right? He gives us his word and expects us to live for his glory. Those who believe and obey the word word of the Lord will be considered God's own possession. Out of all creation, God selects the seemingly insignificant nation, right? To enjoy the benefits of the covenant, Israel was to follow God's commands. As we remember from Romans... We too are saved through Christ and called to live for Him, right? If you love me, you will obey my commands, He says in John. God also said, "All the earth is mine." In verse five, this phrase stands as one of the earliest direct statements of monotheism. This, there is one God in all the earth. Uh, this echoes forward in the words of Naaman in in Second Kings five. We remember that Israel was at war with Israel was at war with Syria, right? And the Syrians kept a little Israeli girl who tells Naaman that Elijah could cure him of leprosy, although Scripture records no one being cured of leprosy. And so, this Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, and and a, a but a leper. And so and so when this little girl tells him this, uh, Naaman goes to Elijah. Elijah doesn't even come to him, but tells him go dip seven times in the Jordan right? Naaman gets ticked off because he didn't ask him to do something hard, which is really kind of funny. He asked him to do something humbling, right? A lot of times we don't have a problem when God asks us to do something hard. A lot of times we have a problem when God asks us to do something humbling, right? That's what Naaman have to do. Take off all his grand robes and armor and whatnot. Otherwise he'd drown and dip himself in the river, Right? So he does that, right? He's healed, um, returns to Elijah. Elijah sees him, we'll see him face to face and Naaman declares, right? The Syrian general, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but Israel. That is a massive statement, right? Because each God had their own geography and you would go from geography to geography, you figure out who the God is and then you would pay homage to that God. Now, in proof that Naaman didn't completely get it, he also asked for enough dirt for two mules because they believed the god of that area was present in the dirt, and so you could take the dirt, dump it out wherever you were, and worship that god. So Naaman got it, but he didn't quite get it, right? Kind of like us, right? but he made that same declaration of monotheism. All right, so Israel, though the people of God, was a kingdom of priests devoted to worship and ministry. They would make the ways of God's kingdom known to all the nations. Through this people, the holy nation, God would bless the nations and bring forth the Messiah. Right, Christians likewise are priests today who worship and serve the living God and who can call out God in prayer there's lots of scripture with that, right? And perhaps, you know, and, and, and he, we can also, we talked about this two weeks ago, right? That there were two sides to being a priest, right? We could go to God in prayer and then we represented God to the people in witness, right? And a lot of times we emphasize that, right, nobody stands between us and God and we forget, right? We're the one that represents God to the people. If we believe, if we really believe in that priest, and the priesthood of the believer is a large—those of you who didn't grow up Baptist, priesthood of the believer is a large tenant of the Baptist faith, right? And it, it's mostly intended that we—we we, there's nobody that's—it's—and it was an answer to Catholicism, right? That there was this priest that stood between you and worship, but there is not. There is Jesus. He is our mediator. The Holy Spirit, right, interprets our prayers and groans. Um, all right. Yeah, and we, as a believer, right, you can take the people to God in prayer and God to people in witness. Uh, many people minimize the importance of prayer, but it is fundamental to who we are as Christians in our mission. We talked about that, right, that the Holy Spirit intercedes and groans too deep for words. When we can't, exp- when there aren't words to express what we need to tell God, the Holy Spirit interprets for us. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? So it still gets to God, right, even if we can't say it or speak it. That's pretty cool. All right. The rest of the chapter, which is verses seven through 25, shows that we are the awe-inspiring holiness of God. Uh, God told Moses these things and then told Moses to tell the people, right, in verse six. Uh, Moses went before the elders of the people and told them the word from God. And all the people, right, answered together that they would do what God commanded them. They soon did not keep that promise as we know. Uh, God announced to Moses that he would come in a thick cloud and the people would hear him speak so they may believe Moses forever. In the New Testament, right, Moses appears on the mountain in the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John with a majestic cloud. Moses was with Jesus when his father declared, this is my beloved son, listen to him, right? Jesus is the better Moses. That pretty cool? The three disciples saw glory and were told to listen to him. We must listen to him too. God told Moses to tell the people to consecrate themselves for meeting with him and that he would take place on the third day, right? Exodus 19, 10 through 15. Does that sound familiar? The consecration consisted of several things, including washing their garments and abstaining from sex. He instructed them not to touch the mountain or they would die. When the trumpet sounds come up to the mountain, Moses came down and told them to be ready for the third day. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God, which is kind of remarkable, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke went up and up the mountain and the mountain trembled greatly right the lord came down to the top of the mountain and called moses up to the top of the mountain verse 20 right god told moses to go down to the people and tell them not to try to come up the mountain to see the lord and for the priests to, who come near the lord to consecrate themselves lest the lord break out against them um, this was the same Hebraic, Hebraic no, notion expressed when God struck Uzzah at the, when he touched the ark, when it was falling off the cart in 2 Samuel. You'll remember they had the ark on the cart. You're supposed to carry it by poles. And on a cart, went over the threshing hole, little edge of the threshing hold. It bounced, was gonna fall off the cart. Uzzah reached out and touched it, dropped dead. It made David pretty angry. But it's what God told him. It, and we do the same thing, right? God tells us what's going to happen. We go do it anyway. And then we're frustrated that what he told us would happen actually happened. Right? Or is it just me? Right? That's very frustrating when he tells you what's going to happen and then it actually happens. It's like God knows. It's amazing. All right. So Moses replied that, they, that, that he had been obedient to God and set the of borders around the mountain to protect the people. The Lord then instructed Moses to go down and bring up Aaron as the Lord was preparing Aaron's line for the priesthood, right? This was a precursor to the tabernacle where the priest would go in and meet with God. Um, Our high priest is Jesus, of course, and he takes us into the most holy place. We too should stand in God's holiness. And Leviticus 19 reminds us to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. The New Testament believers have even more to be thankful for as Jesus brings us into the very presence of God. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 reminds us of this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it should be stoned. Instead, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, mediator of the new covenant, and to be sprinkled blood that sparks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow, right? So we have access to the invisible spiritual realm into the heavenly Jerusalem. And we participate in worship with innumerable angels and the great assembly of the faithful dead who are already in God's presence. How do we come here? Right through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. His blood makes us able to worship. His blood speaks a better word than Abel's, right? From Hebrews 12, 24. As Abel was murdered and his blood cried out for vengeance, Jesus gave up his life and his blood cries out with forgiveness and pardon. Right? Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. Uh, Many think the Old Testament God was when God was to be feared, but now we can kind of skip into God's presence. Um, The text says we stand in awe, right? But we do not stand back away from the mountain, but in Christ, right? Throughout the entirety of scripture, we should fear the Lord. As we remember, our definition of fear is to ascribe power or authority to someone or something. When we properly ascribe all power and authority to the Lord, we can then properly relate to him. And that's, we, we tend to take God casually, right? A lot of the times. As opposed to remembering who we're talking to, right? Remembering who it who, who is. Well, I love when in the Old Testament, right? When he calls, calls his people, what does he say? Y'all are very special, right? Is that what he says to them? No. He says, you were slaves in Egypt and I came and rescued you, Right? You know, what we, were, we, were de- we were worse. We were dead in our sin. And Jesus came and rescued us. Right? And that goes back to that thinking soberly about ourselves. We talk about Romans 12. Thinking soberly. Again, not too low and not too high. But you also need to think properly of God. Right? Who, when we pray, do you understand who we're praying to? So I think I got to talk with, with worship teams. One of the things I've always told them, what's the pinnacle of the gathered worship? Prayer, if if we actually believe it is what it is, right? If we believe that prayer is communing with the eternal, everlasting God, there's nothing higher in our worship service, right? If we actually believe it. And what's frustrating is when churches use that as a a scene change. And then wonder why the congregation doesn't pray. (laughs) It's like, you don't take it seriously, right? Watch Luke. Nobody moves a muscle, right? When we pray in service, you notice that? We don't dismiss the band. We don't dismiss the choir. We pray. We pray as a body and as a gathered people. That is an awesome thing for a worship minister to do. Right? Don't, don't miss that. Don't miss the gift that Luke is to us. Right? Don't, don't miss what he does. What they're up there re- rehearsing right now, right, is eternity. It's not a bunch of worship music. Right? They're rehearsing eternity. Right? We good? All right. In verse 24, God told Moses to go down and for Moses to bring Aaron back up next time he came, next time he came. Uh, Moses went down and went to hear the 10 words with the people. Right? Verse 25 shows us the, the readiness of Moses and the people to receive the 10 words, thundered at them. From the top of the mountain. When you pray, are you ready to receive God's word? When you come to gathered worship, are you prepared to see? Are you kind of sliding in on two wheels? And there are Sundays we all do that, right? My boys were little, right? Victory was, was presence, right? And again, just, just, that's how life works, right? Victory's presence. right? I left with the same number of kids, wasn't always the same, too, right? Guys, like, T- I'm Timmy. It's like, well, you, Benjamin, this week. That's too confusing. Right, we'll take you back next week. They'll be there. We'll kind of figure it out. Right, that didn't really happen. But right, but we. But why do you? There are seasons where you do that. But we should come with our hearts prepared. Right, our hearts to prepare. Do you anticipate the Lord and His grace when we gather in worship? Do you anticipate the Lord and His grace when we come here? Right, I do. To pray for, because Lord, I'm. I'm not. This is not me. Right. This is Him. Right. This is His grace. Through me, in and through me. And hopefully, my obedience and humility, right? Some of Him gets through. Because anything of me isn't going to last. Everything of Him is, right? That's how this works. That's how this works. All right. As we consider the 10 words, we must also consider the holy God who spoke them. Uh, God is awesome in holiness and yet amazing in mercy. The God in the fire on Sinai is also our rescuer like an eagle. He is to be loved and feared. His commandments are a divine gift of a loving God who saves and a divine truth that calls us to holiness. Hamilton said, Yahweh is the most important thing about the 10 commandments. Yahweh is the most important thing about the Ten Commandments, right? Do not miss the God that gave us. And a good quote from Gentry and Willem says, in, creation, in the creation narrative, God creates the universe simply by speaking, by his word. In a very real way, the entire creation depends or hangs upon the word of God. Here, The book of the covenant is what forges Israel into a nation. It is her national constitution, so to speak. And it is also the 10 words that brings about the birth of the nation. Like creation, Israel as a nation hangs upon the 10 words for her very being, right? So God spoke Israel into being. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Our God speaks. Right. Consider the holy God that gave us these words. Consider the gospel gospel pattern in them. So that's uh, chapter 20, verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right. Verse two is really important being placed here and often we're tempted to look over it. Um, in some Jewish traditions, this verse two is the first commandment. And they draw. They draw verses. They draw. Uh, you shall have no god before me, and you shouldn't make a graven image into one commandment. That's not traditionally how we, and we're going to do it kind of the way traditional evangelicals have. But that's that is the way a lot of Jewish um, believers, a lot of Jewish followers, um, do it. Um, but the ten commandments. Let's see. We're tempted, right? First two is a really important place here. We're often tempted to skip over it. Before giving the 10 words, God makes the statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the gospel. God frees us by his grace, giving us new life, and then calls us to obedience in his word, right? Sounds a lot like Romans. Yahweh is Israel's God and brought them out of Egypt, so they are to live for his glory by obeying his commands we should always include verses one and two with the 10 words as they highlight the gospel pattern. People desire to do God's will because they have been saved, not to earn their salvation, right? We don't believe in works righteousness, but we do believe it works effect or sanctification, right? All right. Consider the arrangement of them. Uh, Many ways are proposed to divide the commandments. I just said some Jewish traditions consider verse 2 the first commandment and then combine verses 3 through 6 in a second commandment. Uh, We're going to use the more common understanding that the first commandment is verse 3 and verses 4 through 6 express a second commandment. Uh, People also use different ways of grouping the commands. Um, One way is to divide into layers of specificity. specificity, uh, Starting with the two parts, love God and love people. Right. These come from Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema, Yay. and Leviticus 19.18. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, five says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19.18, you should love the neighbor yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus specifically said the law and the prophets hang on these commandments in Matthew 22.40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Using these two commandments, we could arrange the 10 words into a four and six pattern with the four, first four hanging on the commandment to love God, often called the vertical commandments, and the last six hanging on the command to love neighbor as we love ourselves called the horizontal commandments. Uh, the first four commandments tell us how to love God appropriately, right? To love God on our own terms doesn't make any sense. He's God, right? And that's the John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. My love for God is reflected by my obedience to his words. My love for God is reflected by my obedience to his words. The last six describe our relationship to one another. Our American culture gets caught up with the language of rights. And the only place that I see rights discussed in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about surrendering his rights. Each of these commandments is an expression of responsibility. Of specific ways we care for our familial and social relationships, think about a group of people who treat one another according to these prescripts. What a group that's supposed to be the church. Right? It's supposed to be us. These six laws govern our, govern our interactions with one another. So the last six commandments are comparable to law codes in other ancient Near East cultures, but the first four are unparalleled. Israel's exclusive devotion to Yahweh set them apart. Our exclusive worship of God through Christ Jesus marks us as Christians. Our obedience to the commandments is enabled through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The last six commandments help protect our community and our witness. The first four commandments preserve our orthodox faith. We obey all of them, out of our love for Christ. So let's consider the attributes of, of God displayed in each of them. So the 10 words display ca- the, char- the character of God and he poured himself into the law. Each of the ten words expresses particular attributes of God, the lawgiver. As we walk through the commandments, let's consider a couple of questions. First is, what does the commandment mean? To help answer this, we can draw on other texts to understand the various issues related to them. Uh, some propose that Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 25 exposits the ten words. The second question is, what does this teach us about God? The character of God underpins each one. So the first commandment is 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 Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment does away with Yahweh does away with Yahweh's people following atheism, pantheism, and polytheism in one fail swoop. It's a pretty good sentence. It also hits at one of the deepest problems of the human heart, idolatry. Everyone worships something and or someone. Idolatry is putting something in the place of God, exchanging the glory of the creator for the creation. This leads to a life of ignorance and moral, moral corruption, Romans, right at the end of Romans 1. Idols are not just pagan altars, but in the hearts of his people, right? Ezekiel 14, Galatians five nineteen through 20. We should see our idols for what they, are, what they are and where they lead to death. We must work on our, on our sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and turn to God. Idols will never satisfy. They will no, never deliver what they promise. We need to properly place created things. We enjoy and steward creation, but we worship the creator. Here we see our God as a jealous God. He will not share his glory. Exodus thirty four fourteen says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He's not jealous in the sense that we're jealous, right? He is jealous in his love for us and despises anything that would harm his beloved. His jealous is a loving, proper jealousy to work to his glory and for our good, as we saw in Romans. Right, and idolatry, we are a world of idolatry. Right, TV, radio, politics, church, right? Church has its idols, right? We manufacture them, right? And it is so easy. As Benjamin said, right, there's one way to stand true and a million ways to fall, right? And we can, we can turn almost anything into an idol. Even good things, right? The Pharisees turned the law of God into an idol because they followed the letter of it, not the spirit. Right? The very word of God was sent to them. Isn't that, wow, that's how corrupt our hearts are. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? All right, the second commandment, 24 through Four six, you shall make not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the four, third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So this commandment warns us against worshiping the wrong object and against worshiping the wrong way. Man-made carved images were and are often objects of worship, but they have no comparison to the true God, the impersonal, powerless, deaf, dumb, and dead. Sadly, Israel will fail this commandment soon as the psalmist remembered in Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior. God's jealousy and supremacy is highlighted here. In Exodus 25, God promised to show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the first mention of a loving God. Loving God had implied, and that's what a commentator said. I haven't gone back and verified that. Loving God had been implied already in the Exodus story, but it's explicit here, right? Loving God is the foundation for everything else. Everything else is from the overflow of our hearts third commandment's 27, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To understand this commandment, let's break a couple parts. The first is the focus on the the name of the Lord. Uh, This does not simply mean the name Lord or Yahweh, but rather has to do with all that is connected to his name. God is to be highly valued. He is worthy of highest honor. This is understood in the fact that God names himself we were all given names, whether we like them or not. only God names Himself, revealing His supreme authority, dominion and power. In ancient Israel, they're actually, they're actually some, the name of God carries a lot of weight. So that's the reason some conservative Jewish traditions still do not say it out loud when they read and, and use Adonai instead. So what does it mean to take his name in vain? It is not simply to speak God's name, it means to carry or, or bear God's name. People have, who have publicly declared themselves followers of God are to exalt God's reputation by living in ways that honor him. The command has the idea of not taking God's name falsely or using it meaninglessly. This happens in many ways. Sometimes in gathered worship, we will sing the, the songs for their emotional hit or cultural appeal without honest worship of God. As Christians, we bear his name. In this way, his reputation is attached to us, so we ought to live for his glory. One of the things we always talk to our boys about, your last name is Baal. However you act and whatever you do, wherever you go, reflects on your grandfather, reflects on your mom and I, reflects on your brother. We bear the name of God. Everything we do, right? reflects on God. And when you see how impotent a lot of Christian witness is, it's because what a lot of us have done in the name of God, right? We need to keep that take that seriously. All right, fourth commandment, twenty eight to eleven. And made it holy. In verse 11, we see this commandment is based out of creation, describing how God made the heavens and the earth, then rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath command is also found in Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Right In Deuteronomy, the commandment is modeled after God's provision in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. God's people are called to remember God, right? Their creator rede- and redeemer on the Sabbath, right? Slaves don't get Sabbath, right? When they were slaves in Egypt, did they take a day off? Nope. Slaves don't get Sabbath. How many people take, how many, just answering in, inside yourself, do you always take Sabbath or are you enslaved to something else? Can I ask that again? How many of you take Sabbath or are you enslaved to something else? Are you putting yourself in bondage? Right. right? That's what's so impressive about companies like Chick-fil-A, who's far from perfect, but one of the things they do, right, is they take Sabbath. They're not enslaved to a market, they're not enslaved to shareholders, not enslaved to people, not enslaved to profits, right? Do you exercise Sabbath? If you don't, who's holding the reins? Diverse views are expressed today on what it means to keep the Sabbath, but common to them all are rest, remembering, and worship. God says to remember the Sabbath day, pointing us back to creation and redemption. The Sabbath ultimately points us to the final resting day, right where Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 affirms. For if Joshua had been given the rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest, for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Some are strict in insisting this happened on the seventh day of the week um, or first day of the week, but many interpret this as, a, as working for six days and resting for one. Colossians 216 17 reminds us, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Romans 14, 5-6, the person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one that observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul seems to lay aside all the Jewish ceremonies as shadows, but Paul's intent was not to abandon the principle of Sabbath. The early church chose the first day of the week, Sunday, as the Sabbath. We worship on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, following the early church. That's Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. We do do so to recognize the resurrection. Ignatius wrote in the first century that Christians, quote, no longer observe the Sabbath, but direct their lives toward the Lord's day in which our lives are refreshed by him and his death. Begg says, just as the deliverance from Egypt was at the heart of the Mosaic Sabbath, so redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ is remembered on our Lord's day. Um, And they add, the change not only bore witness to the resurrection, but it emphasized the difference between the Christian Sunday and the Jewish Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath came at the end of six days and spoke of the rest to come. The Christian Sunday comes at the beginning of the week, symbolizing the rest that Christ Jesus has won for those who trust in him. We need a Sabbath. It is rooted in creation and redemption. We may argue over the day, but should not argue over the principle. The Sabbath is God's gift to us as it benefits us to keep it and anticipate the final rest to come. In verse nine, it says six days you shall labor and do all your work. Remember that God has also created us to work. As you work the other six days, you should enjoy the Sabbath. Your body, heart, and mind need to work as well. Work hard to the glory of God, and enjoy the day dedicated to worship on the Lord's day. God is working, creating, and resting God. He is creator, sovereign, eternal, and redeeming. We good on that? All right. The fifth commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God commanded his people to honor their father and their mother. The word honor implies acknowledging the weight of something. In this context, it implies that the people are, give proper weight or respect to their parents' position. The opposite would be to despise or scorn one's parents. Leviticus 29 and Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 have very serious consequences for a rebellious son. Respect for parents should be taken seriously. Note a lot of the ancient Israel revolved around the inheritance of land from one's family. So matters of family were taken with deep social concerns. We see God's authority and provision here. The motivational clause is to live long in the land given by God, showing his generosity. As fathers, we should seek to imitate God, the perfect father, right? And note this commandment was not given to children, right? Right? This commandment was given to adults. We like to use it with our kids, right? Guess what? Honor your father and your mother. Right? Life is at both ends. If we worry about life in the beginning, we need to be equally concerned about life in the end. Right? And taking care and respecting those people, right? We stand, our faith stands on the shoulders of that next, of that generation above us, that generation two above us, right? They did things we will never repay, right? We have the lady that's sitting right here that signed the doc, signed the little notepad, right, for the loan that built the first Brentwood Baptist Church, which is our mother church. We owe her a lot, right? We would not be here had that faithful group not made that investment in, in, in their community. Right, and taking personal responsibility. How are we taking personal That's And that's Jeremiah 20, right, 29. Where I have plans for you and all this stuff. Right, those, those plans, you know when they hit? 120 years later. So are you willing to faithfully obey now so that your great grandkids can benefit from the Lord? And do you think in those terms? Right, most of the time I barely think till next the next hour. Right, maybe tomorrow. Right? What would you sacrifice now so that your great grandkids could have the faith? Right. That's what those people that signed that document did. Right. That's what the people who built this church, this this meeting house, right? And established this church did. Right? So there would always be a gospel presence here in Station Hill. All right. Sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Uh, this commandment is, is expressed with one of the eight words in Hebrew for killing someone or something. Uh, this word includes intentional premeditated killing as well as accidental killing. Uh, the word for murder in Hebrew is specific to, quote, putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization, unquote. Uh, with this in mind, one is not to kill unlawfully. God is showing that life is sacred. We do not murder because God alone gives life. Deuteronomy 20, 32:39. 32, 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. And people are made in his image. God deepened this commandment by saying that anger was like murder in Matthew 5, 22. The seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The commandment addresses sexual purity. The purpose of this commandment is to promote positively the purity of heart, especially within the marriage relationship. The commandment specifically addresses adultery, marital infidelity. Jesus again told us that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart, Matthew 5:27 and 28. The underlying principle is a pure heart. This commandment reminds us of God's faithfulness and holiness. God is holy and commands his people to be holy. God does to safeguard us and our community. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. This commandment deals with taking what does not belong to you. This can manifest itself in any number of ways. This started in the garden where Eve took the fruit that did not belong to her. Rather than stealing, we are to have thankful hearts for God's provision for us and to steward those things well. Otherwise we could be tempted to steal and sin against the Lord. Even what we have is not our own, but to be stewarded for the Lord, for his purposes and glory. This shows God's provision. Because God gives his people everything they need, we do not steal. Paul tells Timothy that the rich must not set their hopes in wealth, right? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, they, are not, they, are, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Typically, this is summarized that you should not lie and that's a reasonable summary. The language here points to something, some other important aspects of the commandment. The language is directly connected to the idea of legal testimony as witness. The idea extends beyond the courtroom to our lives as we will be held accountable for our words. We recognize God's truthfulness in this command as God cannot lie. Right? Titus one two. The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is his neighbor's. The commandment highlights the the twisted desires of mankind and the sin of discontentment. Instead of being thankful for what we have, we covet our neighbor's stuff. Note this is about the inward nature of the law as covetousness is about the heart. It's about desire and it's the only of the latter six commandments explicitly focused inward. It may or may not lead to an act, and even with no act, it's still sin. Jesus warned us in Luke, and he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, "'for one's life does not consist "'of a, an abundance of possessions.'" Hebrews five thirteen five adds more to consider. "'Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, it's not that wealth is evil. It's just that it needs the proper perspective. And although the, Bible does have, although the Bible does have a particular concern with the corruption of wealth, right? The father knows what we need, as we, as we remember the end of, of the chapter in Matthew 6, right? This command reflects God's holy character, that the commands are not a list of rules, but a revelation of the heart of God. His greatest gift in the word incarnate, his his greatest gift is the word incarnate, his son. Consider how the New Testament writers emphasize them. Some say the 10 words are part of a moral law and they divide the commandments in the Old Testament into kind of ceremonial law and civil law and suggest the New Testament confirms the moral law. But we need to be careful about making those divisions as, as those types are often intertwined. For example, like keep the Sabbath is certainly a ceremonial law right it 's an act that we do, um, perhaps we can say that what what God codified, enshrined, and encapsulated in the Old covenant has not changed, but much has been fulfilled in Christ, forming the new covenant. The righteous character of God was continued to be emphasized in the New Testament when speaking of the nature of God and touching on the 10 words. Authors used the 10 words in outline form and also separately referred to the same righteousness put forth in Exodus. All these commands show how to live righteously and help us realize that we have failed so, so miserably. Thankfully, Christ came, lived them out perfectly for us and died in our place. This is good news. So we see how Jesus fulfills them. In the end, right, the people stood in fear trembling, having a realistic sense of awe toward God. We know they failed him repeatedly. Even the mediator Moses failed him. However, once Christ came, our greater Moses, he did not fail. The 10 words point to Christ. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, Galatians 4, 4, 5. He did not abolish the law, but fulfilled it, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass in the law until all is accomplished. Right? He paid the penalty of the law and bore the curse uh, on the cross. So we cannot keep God's law perfectly. So God sent his son to, do, son to do that for us. Remember from our study of Romans that the law shows us what sin is, but it has no power either, unto either justification or sanctification. We are no longer under law, but under grace. However, the Holy Spirit compels us to obey the law in response to our great gift of salvation with the Spirit's indwelling. We do not see God's commands as burdensome, right? First John 5, 3, for the love of God that for this is, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus fulfills a law we could not. We just need to place our faith in him. So what's the goodness of God in this, right? God tells us how to love him, right? That's what those first 10 commandments do, is this is how we relate to God. This is is what we see. God tells us how to relate to each other, right? Those last six commandments protect us and our community. Right, so that we are we're obedient to God. And finally, all of this reveals the glorious character of God that we should imitate. Right? Each of these we saw different aspects of the character of God shown. We good? Did y'all survive? All right. I think so. <laughs> I try not to have a casualty rate. Our church frowns on those. I'm sure they keep a statistic on it. All right. Literal idol worship still exists. Wood, stone, gold, and silver. They have their temples, attendant priests, passionate followers. Today, not in the past. Well, they have their jaguars and mansions and children going to the right school. Right? I can't remember who the dude was, right, that walked into a house of his friend. He was Hindu. And that shrine... In the, in, this, in the living room, and all the chairs were arranged to point to the shrine, so wherever you sat, you looked at the shrine, right? He thought, man, that's weird. Then he came back to his house, and he noticed the TV, and all the chairs in the house were pointed so you could watch the TV. Any difference? That guy hits home, doesn't it? That's why Rachel and I intentionally in our main living area do not have a TV. It's in a room off to the side. In our main living room, we don't have a TV and we don't have a clock. Actually, we do have a clock. It just doesn't keep time. So that's not true. All the little numbers are down at the bottom and it says whatever and it twitches because that's my wife's notion of time. It's pretty cool. It's not very metaphysical. All right. Manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter using today's terms would be a violation of this commandment. I don't know the legal definition thing, so I don't know. Um, that's just kind of beyond my, beyond my scope of legality. Uh, how do we keep the Sabbath? What should we do and refrain from? It's not a list of rules, it's a heart set. Um, what we do is, is we, we focus on God's goodness. Um, we do it in different ways. I, I think I've told you in here before, when I, when I lost all my work in, in 45 minutes uh, at, the begin, at the beginning of the pandemic, and I had one son going to his freshman year of college and one son going to his senior year. Formed God that, that was poor timing. Um, Benjamin, my theological son, came to me and said, "God doesn't promise you any more work." And I said, "You're right. That we don't believe in the gospel in the in the uh, whatever gospel, Osteen's gospel, right? Um, prosperity gospel, right? We don't believe in the prosperity gospel." He said, "You're yeah. right. We don't believe it. But he goes, "Dad, I think you're really smart, and somebody will probably hire you at some point." Thanks, buddy. Bad timing, good truth. And so what we did, right, that was a Tuesday. So what we did is on Friday night, we instantiated a Shabbat meal. And so at Friday night at sundown, our boys would go out to a local restaurant and pick up food for all of us. And we would come back and eat dinner together and talk about how good God is. Right? Because when things don't go the way you expect them or the way you hope and you're somewhat troubled by it, what do you focus on? How good God is that tradition continues last Friday until last Friday. When our boys are home, they, we accidentally invited somebody to it once and our boys were highly offended. And so that's our family ritual on Friday nights. We go out and get local food for takeout and we go sit upstairs and talk about how good God is. And so I don't know what it is for your family. I don't, I don't know what Sabbath is for you, right? I, I, I don't. But what you've got to do is say, this time is God's. The, the problem that we have is we don't tend, and I did the same thing, right? I worked, gosh, 17 hours a day, seven days a week, getting my PhD. I mean, all, all I did literally was sleep, eat, play basketball for a couple hours in the afternoon. And other than that, and I showered most of the time went to church. But most, if I didn't see anybody, I did shower. But most of what I did, 17 hours a day was research, right? That is unhealthy and not what God intended, and that was sinful, right? And you aren't slaves anymore. I'm not slaves anymore, right? Jesus has set us free, and so Sabbath is a choice, right? Sabbath is a choice. And again, I don't know how the Lord's gonna lead you to do that, but I strongly recommend you obey him, right? And that's not because I say it, it's because he said it. Is that reasonable? All right. uh, let's see. I've read the fourth commandment is the only one which is not directly quoted in the New Testament. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, literal idol worship. So really I got that one. Uh, I find it interesting that Shabbat is the only one of these words instituted right after creation. Shabbat in its essence is total trust in God's goodness. Exactly right. God but's provision. Yeah, goodness. Provision, right? That he gives us what we need. You know, do you actually believe that? Right? Covetousness shows you don't, right? Because you think you need that, whoever Fred has, right? That's a, that's a sign that you don't believe in God's provision, right? And I do that in security. My, my big thing is security. I want to be sure I'm, right? I'm an engineer, so I live life in triple redundancy. Okay? My life is like riding on a space shuttle, right? Everything in the space shuttle has three backups, Okay, so my life, everything I can, I have three backups. It is incredibly smooth. It is a massive amount of overhead, and it is utterly unfaithful. And so God, time and again, puts me in places where I can't do that. Time and again, puts me. God goes, "Do you trust me? No, 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 you. I'm gonna give your son cerebral palsy. Let's see you fix that. How you doing, big dog? Yeah, that's not so easy. Is it? All right, you, do you believe me or not? Do you believe I love him or not? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have your second son born 13 weeks early. Right? You believe, you have to pick between him and your wife, right? I got to pick between my wife and my son. God's grace, has got to keep both of them, right? How you doing, big dog? You doing all right? How's that triple redundancy working? You all right? Good, okay. You're all right, he's consecutively done that, right? To, you know why? It's because it humbles me, all right? And, and makes me aware of who he is, right? God will give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than the Holy Spirit indwelling you will carry you through. Amen. All right. I'm not sure what the rabbit joke is. I think we're good. Is that did I get everything? Cool. Is this helpful? And again, I apologize for the long handout, um, but basically what I said is in the handout. So if there's anything you missed or anything you didn't quite catch, it's in there. So we good? Let's pray and go home. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your Son that saves us. Thankful for your commands. Thankful that you give us how to how to love you and how to love each other. Father, give us the humility and wisdom to follow your word, to live it out every day in every way and in everything we do. Continue to keep us focused on you, not on the outcome of our efforts, but on the God-given grace, right? Because what we do is be obedient and we trust you that you are at work to the good for those who love you. Father, we've encountered your word, so do not let us be the same people that walked in here, that walk out. Grace us to look more like Jesus. In the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank y'all.